Welcome to Season 2 of Voices from the Land, a special podcast series produced by the Legacy Hope Foundation. In this podcast series, we'll hear about Indigenous language revitalization projects and efforts to preserve and promote Indigenous languages across Turtle Island. Join us as we learn more about how Indigenous languages are helping Indigenous peoples connect, know, and remember the voices from the land. Hello and welcome to this podcast on Indigenous languages. Voices from the Land is an Indigenous language podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Its goal is to capture more perspectives and voices on Indigenous language revitalization. We are seeking to capture a range of perspectives to better reflect the many people engaged in Indigenous language revitalization. Our aim is that by listening to teachers, adult learners, and parents or guardians of children in language classes, or whose children have taken language classes, we can gain more insight into what are the challenges and barriers, as well as the solutions and positives that are out there. In turn, we hope this will form a larger discussion on how to support Indigenous language revitalization. In this episode, our guest is Colleen Jo Titus. She is a teacher of the Southern Tachon language at several schools in Whitehorse, Yukon. Hello and welcome. Glad you can join us today, Colleen. Hello. Maybe we can start by uh, you talking a little bit about your background, like your First Nation or Hope community, your family background, and how long you've been teaching an Indigenous language. Okay. Uh, good morning or good day. ING, Colleen Joe Titus, Uye, Danke, Shanlea, Uye, Kajit, each day. So my English name is Colleen Joe Titus. My Southern Toshone name is Shanlea, and I am from the Crow Clan. Um, I am also a member of the Champagne and Asiac First Nations here in the Yukon. And I was born and raised in Whitehorse. Uh, I am Southern Tosh- of Southern Toshone and Wichin ancestry. Um, I primarily spent most of my my childhood, I suppose, with the with my Southern Toshone family on my father's side. And so as an adult, I have kind of picked up, you know, the learning of the Southern Toshone language. Um, I'm also a trained classroom teacher. So I have a Bachelor of Education. And so that has helped me to become a language teacher. So I started with that and then about 15 years ago I started my language journey and I was fortunate and felt that this was a gift as well that I was able to take part in some formal training so that I can teach the Southern Toshone language in the public schools here primarily in Whitehorse and so that was through Simon Fraser University Uh, yeah and so I have been teaching for a number of years here mostly in Whitehorse. I taught in the regular classroom in the public school system, kindergarten to grade seven. And then as a language teacher, after I took part in my formal training, I was able to teach the language and taught, I think about eight years as a language teacher, but I have just actually recently retired (laughs) because I have my teaching background and teaching in the schools and my career I guess, as a teacher and educator, has been almost 30 years. So 
my recent teaching experience was teaching the Southern Shoshone language. I am not a fluent speaker, so I just want to make that disclaimer. <laughs> I didn't have the opportunity as a young person to learn the language. Both of my parents went to residential school, and as a result, you know, were not able to pass on um, what they knew of their languages. So my mom on my mother's side is Gwich'in, and, and she has passed away, and my dad as well. He is the Southern Toshone. I was from the Southern Toshone Nation. And so I spent most of my childhood with my father's family and community. And so that, I guess, was uh, what led me to, to, to take on and learn more about the Southern Toshone language here in Whitehorse. I, I think you had said that you took a course in teaching an indigenous language. Did I hear you correctly? Yes. Um, well, not specifically to teach the language, but to kind of learn the language to be able to teach it. So I actually completed a post-baccalaureate of arts through Simon Fraser University. And so that was like about, about two years, approximately, mostly part-time studies. And so that was provided, that was available to some, you know, some individuals here in the Yukon through Yukon government and in partnership with some of the First Nations as well. Um, and so I feel that, it, you know, it was a real fortune for me to, to be able to take part in that. And so that really has helped me. Um, so prior to that, I had a Bachelor of Education and, and was, you know, did teach in the mainstream classrooms here, um, kindergarten to grade seven prior to that. So, I mean, I already had my teaching training. And so the post-baccalaureate provided me with some linguistic training and, um, you know, language training to be able to, to learn the language, to also be able to teach it. Right. Can you uh, describe your experience in preparing to become a language teacher? What you learned and how, you, how prepared you felt teaching an indigenous language in a classroom setting? Yeah, and so that was kind of, I guess like a mixed, mixed bag of things that happened. Like, I mean, I ha have had already had my Bachelor of Education and, you know, I already had training in being a classroom teacher. So that really definitely helped in terms of formal training through, primarily through Simon Fraser University. It was uh, primarily linguistic training, um, learning more about the language itself, you know, and like some of the, the grammar and, and, and that type of thing. And so in terms of preparing me to be a language teacher, it helped, but I then really drew on my prior experience as a teacher to be able to build, you know, a language program. One of the challenges or one of the, I suppose, challenge or barriers here in the Yukon is that the public system, we do not have a language curriculum. And so then what that means or what that requires is that the teacher, you know, has to develop um, a lot of that on their own. Now, we also ha have, you know, in the Yukon, we have a Yukon Native Language Center. And so they have been in operation for a number of years, I think, I don't know, 30 to 40 years. And they did a lot of resource development through the years. Uh, and so I was able to draw on some of that as well. And it certainly helped to have like a combination of all of these things but then you know it really relied on me to be able to bring it all together into a program that I could teach and so each year that I taught you know, I would kind of 
almost go back to the drawing board each time, like looking at, okay, well, what do I want to teach? and How do I want to teach it? You know, like the whole kind of what they would call like a scope and sequence kind of a thing, a curriculum, which again, as I mentioned, we, we don't have like a formal curriculum for our languages here in the Yukon. Yeah, you mentioned the barriers. Well, uh, I'm going to get to that in a few minutes. What is the format you primarily teach in, like, when you're teaching your Indigenous languages? Is it uh, public school, community school, and who are your students? Oh, yeah, so I, it's in the public school system. So we, that, that is all we really have here in the Yukon. Um, we don't have any First Nation schools, although some good news uh, just recently, I think it was last week, uh, that we do have, like, a... a new First Nations school board that has just been ratified through, I guess, the Yukon government and Yukon First Nations in collaboration. So now that is going to be a brand new road that we're going down to working together, you know, to provide an education uh, based on First Nations culture, language, history. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah, we do have a mix of students. It's in, it's in the public system. And so here in the Yukon, some or most, you know, of our schools do have like a, a Yukon First Nations language program because we don't have a curriculum, you know, the, the continuity sometimes is not there in terms of like what the students are learning. And so recently I was teaching at the high school level. And so I would get a real mix of students, some students that did have language experience coming into the classroom and some that didn't so that caused me to create a program more at the beginning level like the very beginning stages of learning a language type of thing right so that was how I designed my program based on that because of the, the mixed students and the other factor as well is that we have eight Yukon First Nation languages and so I was a teacher of the Southern Toshone language, but I would sometimes have students from other, some of the other languages, right? And so they like Casca or Clinket or Northern Toshone or Gwich'in, you know, so they'd have a mix of experiences, which creates a bit of a challenge as a teacher to try and reach to that um, and try and include, you know, as much of all of those experiences as possible to make yeah. it meaningful for the students. Right. I mean, uh, like you mentioned, you have several indigenous languages. Like, how does that work? Uh, like, how do you coordinate and what language do you teach? Do you teach all of those languages at different times? Or uh, I'm just wondering, like, how you, how you would do that? No. Yeah. No, I'm a... So well, my recent teaching experience was at the high school. And so that program, when I came on, you know, I'd like, I'm, a, I'm a Southern Toshone language teacher. So that was understood. So when students sign up, they know that, that that's what they're signing up for because that's who the instructor is kind of a thing, right? So there was no requirement for me to teach to the other languages because I don't have the skills to do that. I would teach Southern Toshone, but I would always be mindful, you know, that there were students in my class from different backgrounds kind of a thing, right? So that I, you know, wanted to make them feel like that they were valued and their background is valid as well so I mean it does make it a bit of a challenge and some ways that I would do that would be to like sometimes I would bring in guest speakers and people that would you know from various cultural backgrounds so that the kids would have exposure there or sometimes you know we would share stories from other 
languages mm -hmm. that they can listen to, those kinds of things. But, you know, primarily it was the Southern Tishoni language that I was teaching. Are there other, like, other teachers that teach other Indigenous languages in the school? Yes. So across the Yukon, like I, as I mentioned, there are eight Yukon First Nation languages. So we have 14 Yukon First Nation communities. And in each of those communities, is there, there is a public school. So in most cases, or if not all cases, you know, that, that it would be that respective language that would be taught. So, you know, if it was a Casca community, then it would be Casca, which in or Northern Toshone, Southern Toshone. In Whitehorse, we actually, over the years, they have been able to offer, you know, a number of those, a number of those other languages as well, based on whether or not there would be a qualified teacher available to teach that language, right? So Clinket, for example, or Gwich'in has been taught in Whitehorse as well. Is it like immersion, like, uh, is it, or is it one class no. per day? No, yeah, it's, it's not immersion. So at the high school level, it's based on the semester system. So each semester, if a you know, student registers for your class, they come every day. And so they have like about an hour, a little over an hour of instruction each day for, for half the year, right? And then, and so I guess one of the challenges there is that, you know, you would only get them for that half year and then there'd be like a break there and then they would come back next year. So in terms of like continuity, you know, um, learning the language, that, that poses a bit of a challenge. Um, at the elementary level, here in the Yukon, we only have like the two, like we have the elementary system and then the secondary system. So K to seven and then grade eight to 12. We don't have middle school. So the students at K to seven, primarily in most cases, I think it's like three times a week or like a half an hour, I think is, is the norm for that. Does the uh, age range differ on how you think your students should be taught? Well, yeah, I think just, I guess, based on like my training as a teacher, like you want to make your programming like developmentally appropriate, you know, based on the, the age of the student, you know, and then you overlap that with, you know, language learning. So like somebody's coming, somebody coming in at, the, at a very beginning level of learning, you know, try to utilize, you know, resources and methods that would be conducive to that, you know, because um, obviously you don't want to jump too far ahead and make it too complicated right off the bat. You kind of want to work with some type of flow there. Um, and I'm kind of, I guess, speaking more at the high school level. Um, at the elementary level, you know, the Yukon Native Language Center did develop a lot of excellent resources that can be utilized there, taken children from, you know, the very beginning, like kindergarten to grade seven. And so Think a lot of teachers do utilize that model um, then, you, then you go to the high school following that so it is like i mean students going through kindergarten to grade 12 here in the yukon like there's there's not a like continuity i guess for for every child you know so based on what school they go to and, and if they move and you know so there's there's those transitions that happen and Sometimes it's seamless, sometimes it's not. <laughs> so that poses some challenges, I guess, for the learner as well, yeah. and, and the teacher. In your teaching experience, what are the biggest obstacles to success for your students? Well, 
I mean, I think that uh, I think there's a number of things there, like that that pose some obstacles for students. One of the things I mentioned was like that that trend, those transitions, right, going from. And so, if they, if a child moves, you know, sometimes they lose that, you know. So they may have had elementary experience, you know, in one school, and they learned one language, and then maybe they go to a high school, and then they 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 lose that continuity. So just like I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges is just like how how can we maintain those transitions um, as a child moves around and sometimes you know they they do right sometimes kids move families move um, yeah. so that's one and I think the other challenge particularly at the high school level is that the students and, and, and especially in Whitehorse and this is a good thing I think in a way like I mean the students when they get to high school they have a lot of options for course selection you know and so sometimes, you know, they're choosing one or the other courses. And so like always, you know, their decisions are based on their graduation requirements. Like, what do I need to graduate kind of thing, right? right. And so oftentimes they'll sit down with their counselors or their parents and say, okay, these are the courses I would like to take or I need to take kind of thing, right? And so the, then you, sometimes you have that where sometimes they're not choosing the courses because of other needs or or, the, or, the, or that type of thing. Another challenge, again, for students, I think it is, is like family support. And not to say that there's not family support. I think there always is. I mean, families want the best for their children. Um, but sometimes, you know, if, if the language is not at home or in the community, then where do they practice it? Where do they, you know, where are they maintaining that, what they've learned in the school type of thing, right? So, so the school, you know, has a role to play, but I also think, you know, other places in the, in the community can have a role to play as well, whether it be the family or, you know, the, the First Nation or the government or those kinds of things. So like, how can we all be working in concert with each other to build this, you know, for our kids and for ourselves? Because I mean, I, in my experience, you know, the learners are right across the board, I mean, all the way from early childhood to adult. Right. And so how do we work together and collaborate and, and build these programs that work alongside each other to provide as much language experience and language practice for, for all, all learners, you know, including school age kids? I get the same question I'll ask you about uh, the biggest obstacles I ask you about the students. Uh, what would you say is a big big challenge for like your school in improving success for students. You mentioned so, continuity. Right? It's one thing that the students, mm -hmm. uh, it's a challenge for students. Could is that could be the same thing for a school? I think so. But um, so I just want to clarify, like when you're saying success in the schools, are you talking about like just to succeed, their, their general education or are you talking to, about language learning to, to in see, particular? To, yeah, to succeed in, uh, in learning a language in uh okay. yeah so in terms of the school now like what are the challenges that school faces yeah yeah being uh providing us uh helping students become successful in learning and in indigenous languages yeah so i think um i think with that the schools like you know i think we're you know as we're as we're moving you know down this road of like reconciliation you know, I think right now we're definitely in a time of transition. I think that there's a desire 
at this time to, to shift some of that. Um, and I think there is a recognition, like here in the Yukon, there's a recognition, um, you know, Yukon government and First Nations governments that some of the things that we've been doing are probably not working. And this is just like, I guess, in terms of overall success, but in terms of, you know, language learning, I think that's part of it too, right? And so I think the school recognizes, I think our governments recognize, you know, that there are challenges that we need to face, or we need to seek, you know, some solutions to these. And right now that's, that's what we're in right now. We're in that kind of exploration. I think here in the Yukon is like, well, what do we need to do to start shifting some of this so that we can have or provide better experiences for our students, including, you know, language and cultural revitalization. So there is a move, you know, to go in that direction right now. And so many of the schools are, you know, embarking on, well, how can we improve things here for all of our kids? You know, not just like, we're not just talking about like First Nations kids, but all kids, right? Right. Like all kids, I think this is going to benefit everyone. But in particular, you know, in terms of language and cultural revitalization, there's a lot that we can do ahead of us, you know, and uh, just making some meaningful changes here and there. Uh, one of the things is, um, you know, the educators, like the teachers, the language teachers. Uh, so I just recently retired um, after you know a number of years of teaching and we had a real difficult time finding someone to teach after me kind of thing like a replacement so right now the position is vacant and they have had a challenge of trying to find somebody to be able to provide that program so this semester the students are not able to have you know the southern Tishoni language at, at the school I was teaching because there's a lack of teachers so that's one of the things right and so I think like a focus on trying to to um, encourage or, you know, provide opportunity, not opportunities, but maybe training, uh, more training for young people to, to want to go into teaching. For myself, you know, it, it has been challenging uh, learning, you know, one of my languages as an adult, uh, like an older adult. I mean, it was about 15 years ago um, that I started and I was in my 40s, you know, learning a second language is not easy for sure. And it's just, it requires a lot of dedication, you know, desire and that type of thing too, right? And so yeah. somehow or another, you know, um, as governments, you know, how, how can we enable, you know, more individuals to come forward to learn the language, to teach the language, to teach it in the schools or, or in some other educational setting? It doesn't necessarily have to be in the school system. But yeah, I think that's one area. I guess that would be applied to the community as a whole. Uh, the same thing, uh, finding teachers, you know, to, to teach the, the languages in, uh, in the community, in the schools. Is there other challenges that a community like Whitehorse uh, or any of the small towns would face in uh, helping their students uh, succeed in learning their languages? Well, probably like finding so I, I'll just give an example. Like, so here in the Yukon, we have self-governing First Nations. So I'm from the Champagne-Asiac First Nation, which is a self-governing First Nation. And so a number of years ago, you know, under you know, our chief of council, they identified you know, language and cultural revitalization as a priority. And so we're fortunate actually to have a number of 
people within our citizenship who have, you know, formal and informal training around like teaching languages and that type of thing. And so, um, so the de decision was made, you know, a number of years ago to, to create a, an adult immersion program fully funded by the First Nation or mostly funded. Like, I think there was some external funding that came into play there, but they decided, okay, well, we need to invest in this because it's a, we're at a critical stage. And if we don't, you know, we, you know, we, we stand to lose our languages in the future kind of thing. So this started up a number of years ago. And so it's, um, so the program that was designed was a two-year immersion program. So that the, the cohort, the first cohort graduated last June. And so now we have a second cohort going through. And so that's a really exciting program. But it was, you know, under the initiative of the First Nation, so stepping in and saying, we need, this is what we need. And so they take in, like, I think the capacity is like 10 students. And so the students attend, you know, full-time every day for two years. And um, they come out, you know, with uh, fairly good fluency. So the first cohort just graduated last year and they were kind of like the first group, right? So. So there was that, you know, there, there's that. So at, at the community level, you know, each community. So because we are self-governing here at the Yukon, like each First Nation, you know, determines what their priorities are themselves. And so there are, like, I mean, Champagne and Ajax recognized this need and said, yes, we're going to, we're going to invest in it. And we're going to make sure that we address this. And so, so there's, there's that. And then other First Nations are doing similar type programs. I don't know if anyone else is doing immersion. Uh, I don't think so, but, but, you know, I think that there are other initiatives going on in, in other First Nations to, to revitalize language and culture. So, so we're on that road, you know, and I think maybe one of the steps or one of the, or I'm not necessarily sure if this is a, like a challenge or, or what, but like, I mean, just the collaboration between governments, like how do we work together to be able to provide you know, good solid programming like that uh, across the board. So eventually down the road, you know, we may see like immersion type programming in the school system, which I think would be awesome, you know. And then eventually down the road, you know, we'll get to that place where with the world there will be those seamless transitions for people, right? It, it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight, that's for sure. It does require a lot of, you know, commitment, dedication, and sometimes funding. Yeah, for sure. Commitment and dedication. Yeah, those are kind of things that you really need from the community. And I know that a lot of communities across Canada are doing similar similar work as you in your community. And culture and language revitalization appears to be a, a priority in many, many communities across Canada. Reserves, First Nations communities, Métis communities, and not so much Inuit, because I know Inuit, are, they have a pretty strong language. Their language is pretty healthy, so they're not as, it's not as uh, a serious an issue for them right now. But uh, I know right across Canada, the First Nations communities certainly is a priority to get their language back, you know, revitalize. Revitalization is a, is a big, uh, big priority. And there are a lot of success stories, too, so... So my, well, my next question is about uh, what would you say is going well or is a key factor in, in your school or program in improving language learning outcomes for your students? What are some of the things that are happening that you guys are doing that are 
are, are positive outcomes. Well, like you know, as I was mentioning right now here in the Yukon, we are going we are going through some transition. People are, I think, really recognizing and working hard to try and shift some of these realities, you know, that we've been experiencing. And so I think many schools are now looking within and, and saying, well, what can we do, you know, to, to help and to enable um, our students, all of our students, and maybe in particular, you know, our First Nations students to, to succeed, to do better. Um, and so they are starting to, to, to bring in, I think, more like cultural inclusion, language inclusion, bringing in elders, bringing in programming, you know, that children can take part in. You know, and, it, and I guess a lot of the time for young people, it is about identity. You know, when you see yourself there, it is a lot more meaningful. And I think, I think that will, you know, lead to more success, you know, for at an individual level, at a collective level. Um, so we're on a road right now. I think, you know, it's, it'll, it'll, it'll be time before we can see, you know, the results of that. I mean, I feel really good about it. I think that I think it's necessary to go in this direction. And then in the, the communities, you know, alongside of the schools, like, you know, maybe working more in collaboration, you know, the, the old saying, like, it takes a village to raise a child type of thing, right? Like, how do we all work together in concert to, to make this happen um, yeah. for our children? Right. I'm looking for something that's specific, I guess, uh, specific key factors that are, that, that are uh, that are that are making your language program successful. I'm just trying to think of some examples uh, uh, that you. What are you guys doing? Like, what are you doing that are making that's making it work for you? That's, that's, you know, what are the positive things you're doing? Well, I mean, I think for myself, you know, when I first started teaching language, and I think in total, it was probably about eight years or so that I was able to teach language in the schools when I started teaching at the high school level one of the areas I recognized you know with young people is like to try to bring in technology and so for students to be able to access like iPads and things like that to be able to learn language to be able to to do some of their projects on the so for example like and I'm not, I'm not a techie person I had to rely on other people to help me with this but like one of the projects I started was like with my students was to do like iMovies and so the students at the beginning of the, the semester you know would, would learn how to introduce themselves in the language and so then I have them record it and then edit it and you know put the little words in there and, and that type of thing so use the use of technology I think is one thing you know and I, I if I had more time and more experience I would have brought that more into my programming because I think that's a, a move in the right in the, in the good direction there because it definitely appeals to kids um, so use the use of technology. And I think across, you know, probably around the world, this is coming more into play. Uh, and I've seen some awesome, like examples of awesome um, kinds of like, you know, apps and things like that, that people are developing um, yeah. that I think are pretty neat. And I think that could be explored more and, and maybe invested in more. Yeah, I've heard that uh, recently that technology you know, using computers and different types of apps or, or because, you know, kids nowadays, that's what they're growing up with. And, uh, and they, yeah. they understand it so well, like I'm not technically sound myself, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kids nowadays, even, even little kids that are three, four years old are 
using computers. So <laughs> it amazes, it amazes me. Yeah. So, but another area too, I, I think is like here in the Yukon and probably, well, I'm sure in many places, you know, to do, to offer like on the land, you know, hands-on experiential programming too is, is, is necessary because that's how, you know, that's how we learn. That's how our ancestors learn and, and providing those kinds of opportunities to our students and to our learners, you know, because I've seen it. I've seen, like I've seen, you know, times when the kids have been out on the land or, or in a hands-on experiential, you know, activity. And, and they're just, they're, they really connect with it, you know, and right. I think it's, it goes hand in hand with learning language and learning culture. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Language is, uh, you know, culture and language go hand in hand. If You know, if you understand the language, you'll understand the culture more deeply. And that's that's what's happening across Canada, our country. Mm -hmm. uh, language and cultural revitalization is happening right across Canada. And uh, many, many communities, First Nations communities, mm -hmm. are, are actually, you know, going back to the land and uh, using that approach, you know. So, uh, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add or share uh, about improving indigenous languages? Well, I think another thing is is like the the whole idea around like intergenerational transmission as well, right? You know, so having opportunities to bring those generations together, you know, like the elders, with the parents, with the, the kids, and providing opportunities there because I mean that's a natural transmission as well of language right and it's how we learned language to begin with and and another thing i kind of wanted to touch on too was was um the whole idea of, around the healing piece here too and because of our you know colonial history around residential schools and that type of thing like i mean so much was lost there during that time and there's still you know a lot of trauma and a lot of scars people are dealing with Right. And and so sometimes that, you know, prevents us from participating in things or from helping, you know, in these areas. So, for example, you know, um, as I was like learning about language revitalization, one of the concepts I came across was that idea around um, what they call like silent speakers, you know. And I think there's this whole healing piece there. Like I know my parents were in that category because they were, you know, went to residential school. And I definitely know like my dad, when he was alive, like, you know, he, I, I mean, deep down, you know, he really wanted to, to pass what he could on to us, but he, for whatever reason, wasn't able to, you know, to speak the language with us all of the time. I mean, every once in a while he would say things, but it was never like fluently or whatever. And, and I know now like that was a lot of that was, you know, the trauma and, that he experienced at residential school. And so it did prevent him, you know, from that whole idea of around like that intergenerational transmission, that natural transmission that happens, you know, between generations. And so right now on the road that we're on, that this is an area I think that I think needs to be explored a little bit more. Like, well, let's look at this, what, what is happening here and how can we shift this? Um, how can we make our places, like our communities, our homes, uh, schools, a safe place, you know, for, for all, right? Like including our elders, our fluent speakers, and work on that healing piece. 
somehow or another. And I think that we all play a part in that, right? Everyone needs to, to play a part. And each of us can do something, I think, with that. In our own backyards, in our own homes, you know, we can we can do things as well. And like in the schools, in the community, what can we do, you know, to work on this piece and, and make it, make, make these safe places for us, you know, so... I think that's just another thing that I just I kind of wanted to add um, because I know in terms of transmission, language transmission, I think that this is intergenerational. Um, you know, each of those generations is important and are significant in that whole process. Okay, well said. Thank you for taking the time to do this with us. I wish you all the best. I guess you're heading into retirement now. Yes, I am slowly. Well, well I'm, I'm I'm retire I'm like I'm retiring, but I feel like I I still have, you know, work to do and that kind of thing, right? But it's not. It'll be in a different context, I suppose. But well, I'm I looking forward to. Well, I think you're doing a wonderful job. Uh, you got so much to offer your people, and uh, and I encourage you to continue to to help in the area of language revitalization. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Hey, we'll see. English. Voices from the Land is a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Music is provided by David Finkel. For more episodes like this and to learn more about the work we are doing, please visit www.legacyofhope.ca.